Hi, this is Kerwin, and this is Keith of Father Son Galaxy. Thank you for joining us. We are coming from the Fan Expo in Chicago, and we have two very special guests with us today. Um, so we have Ken Quattro, a historian and author of the book Invisible Men, The Trailblazing Black Artist of Comic Books. He was a consultant on the film Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, a story about the creator of Wonder Woman, Charles Moulton. He attended Eastern Michigan University and the University of Michigan studying fine art and journalism. We also have Stan Stanford Carpenter, PhD, who is a cultural anthropologist, comic book scholar, and archaeologist. He's on the advisory board and co-organizer of the Black and Brown Comics Art Festival. He's taught courses in anthropology, comics, journalism, and popular culture at the University of Maryland, John Hopkins University, the Rhode Island School of Design, and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Welcome to Father Sean Gallagher. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you so much. You have written an incredible book. Um, it was very interesting to see how many artists are out there that are so unsung and we don't know about. It's a sad history, but it's not surprising. Um, so what I want to know is, what brought you on this journey? Why were you interested in learning about who these men are? And where did you get the information, the resources you needed to find out about, uh, find out more about what they are and how they contributed to the comic book industry? Okay, well, it, it's kind of a long story, and I'll cut it short. But uh, it was over 20 years ago. And uh, I was actually researching an artist named Matt Baker. And at the time, a lot of people figured that Matt Baker was the only black artist who worked what was called the Golden Age Comics, which was the 1940s and 50s. And uh, that always seemed strange to me because just statistically, it didn't make sense for only one black man to ever work in the comic book industry. So I was, for years, I kept trying to find information on him and nobody had anything. Finally, I was put in touch with a, a, a retired black cartoonist from the Philadelphia Tribune, and his name was Samuel Joyner. And uh, what I did is I wrote a letter to Mr. Joyner. This is in the early days of the internet. So I wrote the letter to Mr. Joyner asking if he knew anything at all about Matt Baker. Well, not only did he know things about Matt Baker, he wrote me a four-page detailed letter about Matt Baker and several other artists that he knew, including Cal Massey, who's also from Philadelphia. And I was stunned, because he sent me uh, some clippings and some photocopies of some of their work. Well, I immediately wrote Mr. Joyner back, and you know, I thanked him for the information, and he wrote me back another long letter with more clippings. Well, that just started the ball rolling. And you know, I said, I gotta find out more about these men. But the problem was, Kerwin, at the time, there was nothing to find. Because uh, most of the research is done through uh, white newspapers. Yeah. The New York Times, the uh, Washington Post, and things such as that. Well, unfortunately, most libraries never kept copies of black newspapers. They would throw them away if they had them. So what I had to do is I decided to just exclusively use the black media. And I literally spent the next 20 years scouring the country 
finding any places that carried black newspapers. And I had to piece together all this information about these uh, individual men. And I also, at the same time, we did genealogical research on each one of them. So I not only was learning about their careers as artists, but their lives as men. And I tried to, uh, I got deeper and deeper into black literature and uh, anything I could find that gave me a better understanding of the world that they grew up in. And that's what led to being called Invisible Men. I took the title from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man book. And that's where he talks about the double consciousness that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about. And um, I'm sure Stanford can add something about that, if, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Now, now Dr. Carpenter, did you, were you aware of any of these men prior to the creation of the book? Uh, I was aware of some of them. I mean, what, to me, what's interesting is when um, I was approached to, to write an intro to, to Kent's book during the pandemic. And um, I was just sitting back and I was, I was sent the, the um, digital proofs. And, um, and part of the reason I took it on is I was immediately struck because also 20 years ago, um, I was uh, um, almost 20 years ago, I was a, a, a fellow at the Smithsonian. And I was doing I was doing my dissertation research, and I was looking at contemporary representations of African Americans. Um, and I was I was at like a, I was at like a little a little dinner party with my uh, one of my advisors at the Smithsonian, um, John Franklin, and he introduced me to Tom Feelings. And he told Tom Tom Feelings is like a famous uh, a famous uh, you know children's book author um, and illustrator. Um, but he told me, he's like, when, when he found out that I was studying comics, he's like, oh, yeah, back in the back in the day, I was actually ghost penciling issues of Batman. And I was like, mind blown. Right. And and then then that that opened the door for me to think of like, oh, there's a lot of unsung people here. Now, that's not the direction that my research went in. But that was something that I kept coming up on was was this was the lack of of history. Like here I am at the Smithsonian. Here I have access to the Library of Congress, and there's hardly anything about black comic cre about black comic creators, you know, before the Silver Age. Before the Silver Age. Oh, thank you so thank much. You. <laughs> and um, yeah. and so what was what was what was great about that was was you know at, when I went up to New York and I was I was talking to Jamal Igo, who who's a contemporary. Oh, okay black cartoonist you know this is also before before the internet before social media well there's internet but there wasn't much social media and he and i made this list of black comic creators and he was helping me and we're calling we're calling other like black comic editors and other black comic creators and we put together this list and you know within the next year we more than double the size of this list of people who we newly discovered as black it was like and what's what's almost embarrassing are some of the names it's like so we knew of Sean Martinborough, but we didn't know he was black because we didn't meet him at a convention. We didn't meet him personally. At a we had I hadn't met him personally at a convention, which is the only way you would know. There was no social media. So I recognize this as a problem that, um, that started to fix itself going forward with social media. So when you, when, um, when I got a hold of your book and I was, I'm reading it and I was asked you the intro, I was like, I completely got it immediately. Immediately, I was like, "Wow, this is the, this is the stuff 
that was that was the the problem for even doing any type of research on black comic creators. We didn't even know who was black. So, Dr. Carpenter, you wrote the introduction to the book. The first sentence reads, it's a story about double lives and double consciousness. Can you explain further about what that means? Okay, so what I, you know, what W. E. Du Bois talks about double consciousness, and one of the um, one of this one of the statements from the from when he when he coins the term is he talks about um, living in a state of double consciousness when um, you're seeing your, yourself through the eyes of the other. So somebody who is not like you is representing you, and you have to reconcile yourself with those images of you that aren't you, right? Um, and that was something that I actually took to heart in my early research, even back to the dissertation. I was like, I was like, wow, this describes the dilemma. Now, one of the things that, that I did, which, which actually got me in a little hot water later, is I realized I'm like, okay, so we have this issue of people seeing themselves through the eyes of someone other. Well, as I was doing my research, I started looking at the way in which we talk about race. And I'm like, okay, Superman is created by two Jewish kids from Cleveland at a time when Jews were not considered white, at a time when Eastern Europeans were not considered white, right? So it's a completely different construct. These are the types of things that us anthropologists get all like quivery and excited over, right? So, um, so I was like, I was like, okay. So these two Jewish kids from Cleveland, and I did my undergraduate at Oberlin College, so I've been in the shadow of Cleveland, right? So I have a sense of the area, and I was like, I was like, so they're actually in creating Superman. They're creating their imagined identity of what it is to be a mainstream white heterosexual man. And I'm like, but they aren't in that category. And then I'm like, oh, and, and Clark Kent, if you look back, you know, back then in the 30s and 40s, journalists were, uh, being a journalist was a blue collar job. So that was much more of a job of the people. He's like, I'm like, oh, wow, Im this is their image of what it would be like if they were fully assimilated into this into this country in like a mainstream position. And then I'm like, oh, so Superman is double consciousness for white folk. And I and I and I was like, that's interesting. And that's and I and I, I went on to say that's the okie doke of comics, right? right? Is that you've got all of these characters that are built around the construction of identity by people who don't match the identities that they're, that they're constructing. And it's not just happening to black folk. That was that was one of the things that was like an epiphany to me and really interesting. So fast forward to when I encounter your book. That's the that was one of the first thing I saw. I'm like, oh wait, this is actually further proving an earlier thesis because now you're putting forth the proof that we had black people who were creating the image of white folks that white folks were trying to aspire to. That complicates the American story. Uh, Mr. Ken, your yes. book covers the lives of 18 artists, and let's touch on two of them. The first is Elmer Cecil Stoner, born October 20th, 1897, in Woke Bar, Pennsylvania. Could you tell us a bit more about how Mr. Stoner contributed to the comic book industry? Sure. Um, Elmer Stoner is actually a personal hero of mine because for everything that he did, um, 
he's from Wilkes-Barre, like you said, and his family is, uh, he had been in Pennsylvania for five generations. His great-great-great-great-grandmother was one of Martha Washington's slaves, and she was freed, and uh, she went north, and she settled in Wilkes-Barre. So he was very proud of his Pennsylvania heritage. Um, he came from a family where his father was a pastor, and his mother was a concert pianist. So he came from a, a wasn't exactly a well-to-do family, but like I guess you would consider almost like a middle-class family. And anyway, uh, he was almost like a child prodigy as far as like being an artist. And early on, uh, there was the wealthiest man in town was a guy named Fred Morgan Kirby. And Fred Morgan Kirby started the Woolworth uh, dime store chain, which you're too young to remember, but I'm sure your dad remembers Woolworths. Okay, well, he was very wealthy. And uh, for some reason, uh, Stoner uh, came to the attention of Mr. Kirby, and he was so impressed by his talent that he paid for four years of uh, uh, college for him at the Philadelphia Academy of Art, which is pretty amazing back in the day, you know, to do something like that. And uh, Elmer, while he was going to school there, was such a good artist, he, he won an award called the Cresson Award, which allowed him to study in France, uh, study fine art in France, you know, painting and everything. So he came back to the United States in uh, August of 1922. And uh, he came back just in time to uh, uh, put his paintings in a, a show that was being uh, held at the Harlem uh, Library. And it was the first showing of black artists, African-American artists in the United States. And he just happened to be one of the artists who was there. Well, he happened to be one of the stars of the show. Okay, and he became a very accomplished and very successful artist within the black community because he just had, again, it just happened that the Harlem Renaissance was just starting at that time. And uh, while he was uh, uh, preparing for the show, he met a woman named Vivian. And Vivian was very uh, well contacted within the Harlem community. And uh, she introduced him to a lot of the... Uh, famous people who were, uh, you know, writers and artists in Harlem at the time, people like Langston Hughes and Zora Neale uh, Hurston and stuff like that. So he was very well connected. And uh, he did a little bit of work in the black media, but he was one of the very first black artists to cross over and actually do work in the white media. And he did some commercial artwork. But then the depression came along and just like everybody else he had a hard time finding a job and uh, he got a job basically through the work projects administration which was a, a thing that uh, Franklin Roosevelt came up with and it was uh, created solely for the uh, the purpose of allowing writers and artists who were unemployed to find you know at least get some sort of income and he ended up working actually on a, a railroad exhibit at the 1939 World's Fair. But that was only a temporary position. He still needed to find paying work. So at that time, one of the few uh, entry-level positions that a black artist could get it was comic books. And he was the very first black man to work in comic books and he got a job working for a comic studio and after he got the job 
he provided, uh, he served as like a conduit for other black artists who came along after him. And he got other artists into the comic book field. So he was the first one. And he's very instrumental in, uh, you know, helping other artists who came along later. And he literally drew, even though he has, he has not been credited, he probably drew about a thousand pages or more in covers for comic books during the 1930s and 40s. Mr. Stoder created the character Phantasmo, Master of the World, a superhero who can pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea, fly swift around the earth. Pa bullets pass through him harmlessly. Fire and water and gravity are toys in his hands. How much of Phantasmo was inspired by Superman, who made his comic debut two years earlier? Well, it, it, it took a lot from Superman, but all the stories of these characters came from Stoner. He would, he's one of the uh, artists who also wrote his own work, which is fairly unusual back at that time to write the stories. And I always uh, found that the stories he wrote about, whether it was Phantasmo or his Blue Beetle stories, which were even more successful, they, they, he just had such a wild imagination. And, it, and his stories were so extreme that uh, they, they were unique for the time. And uh, I think they even stand up to, to today because it's just such a unique uh, take on the superhero uh, idea that he came up with. Did you have anything to add to that, Stanford, at all? No? I couldn't, I couldn't, hear, I couldn't quite hear the question. No, no that's okay. <laughs> so we we're talking about Phantasmo. There was a character that uh, uh, Mr. Stoner wrote. Um, we thought... It might have been inspired by Superman because it's about a character who is very strong. Uh, he flies a swift around the earth. He passes bullets through him harmlessly. So we just wanted to know because of, at that time, I think there was a, a huge uh, uh, interest in superheroes. So, and this came out two years after Superman. So I was just wondering if that was the reason for uh, the superhero genre, uh, starting with Mrs. Stoner creating this character called Phantasmo. Well, it's hard to know for sure because we can't we can't talk to EC Stoner. Right. But one of the things that I find really interesting about those early days is that, um, for instance, if you look at the DCU, right, most of the characters are based on something else. The, the, the characters aren't necessarily based on other superheroes, so you've got a lot of a lot of characters inspired by mythology, um, you know, different stories from the ancient world, um, and that's something that that, that I find incredibly um, incredibly fascinating, um, especially when you start looking at um, like the DC universe, right? Most of it is um, a, lot, a lot. Most of it is like Mesopotamia wrapped in Egyptian clothing, right? Whether it's you know you've got Doctor Fate, you've got Hawkman, you've got all you know all these characters where you're like where if anything what's interesting is that the characters are actually white, right? Yeah. You know, so while we don't know what what inspired Phantasmo, um, I would I would say that it's just as likely that he was inspired by Superman as he was by other mythological figures. Got it. If I could just add something, the whole concept of superheroes and secret identities and everything 
kind of plays into the whole double consciousness thing anyways, because you're taking on another identity. It's like, oh, in my private life, I'm this, but in my public life, I'm a superhero. And, it, you know, to me, it's, it's sort of like a, a, a graphic version of what the whole double consciousness idea is. Definitely. I mean, the other thing I would add, and it's something I mentioned in the, in the intro, and it's something that I pick up and explain, expand a little more in some, a back matter piece that I wrote for David Walker's Bitter Root. Um, it's this issue of power fantasies, right? What I find to be really, really core and interesting about superheroes is it is one of the few, it, it, it's, it's very American. It's very American in, in that it operates on this assumption that if you give an individual power, like ultimate power, like power more than anyone else, right? And he, um, that, that he will be unmoored from the state. He won't be like a state agent. He won't be an agent of, of a religious hierarchy. That, that he will, as an individual, not be corrupted by it and go out and somehow act in the way that is best, Right. Now, what, what really ends up happening is, he, is that the superhero ultimately forms their own constituency, yeah. and they tend to serve them. As a result, that's why you, why you don't have like a black superhero then, right? Because who would, ultimately, who's right are they right. serving, right? right? But, you know, the power fantasy um, has resonance because it's something that is part of the human condition, Right. We are, we're born into a world in which we have no power, and much of growing up is about learning, about acquiring, learning, and understanding the ethical use of power, which is everything that a superhero is about. It's this, it's, you know, um, with great power comes great responsibility, right? That's the struggle to take this power you have and use it in a way that, in a way that, that is that's responsible, right? So I find that that's the thing that I find to be really fascinating about superheroes at their very beginning. I mean, sometimes people get um, very caught up in in um, trying to um, to to make it too political. It does become political, right? Yep. But at its core, it you know I think I've I've come to the conclusion that the that the real attraction and the power and the, well, the power behind the power is that. Every one of every superhero story is a recitation on the ethical use of power. All right, so let's talk about Clarence Matthew Baker. Uh, he was born December tenth, nineteen twenty-one, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. His artwork to me rivals Jack Kirby. I mean, it, it's yeah. really on that level. Um, so he is artist best known for lead female characters such as the Phantom Lady, Tiger Girl, Canteen Kate, and Flamingo. Um, he's known for drawing detailed, beautiful and stylish looking women. Right. You know, so he seemed to be very uh, uh, up on fashion. Right. Um, you know, very right. uh, interested in how the woman looks right. on the page. Um, who do you think his inspiration was when he designed these women in his comics? Was there a model or an actor at the time, maybe, that he met? It's, it's, it's hard to know, you know, again, you know, a particular inspiration. There's varying stories about him personally. Uh, he was known to be a ladies' man, okay? And uh, he was an incredible dresser. If you look at any of the photographs in the book, you can see he was a very handsome man, very sharp dresser. 
and even other, I talked to other uh, artists who knew him at the time, and that's one of the first things they comment on. And he also drove a, a, a yellow convertible that, uh, you know, impressed the heck out of everybody. But he always had beautiful women around him. And it was just, I think it was just intrinsic to his personality. He was very aware, you know, very cognizant of all the things like fashion and stuff like that. However, and I have to mention it because there's a couple people who knew him. They said they thought he was gay. Okay. But I think that was almost like a jealousy kind of thing because he was so successful with women and so good looking and stuff that it's almost like they have to put him down or, or, or try to cast aspersions on him. You got to understand, he was just about the only black man who was working amongst uh, these white artists like in the late 40s and early 50s. So he was definitely, you know, a, 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 you know, alone all the time. And so none of these guys knew him really well and stuff like that. But he had, you know, everybody copied him. He totally changed uh, comic books because prior to him, they didn't feature all these beautiful women on comic book covers. Now. They didn't exist. Uh, Wonder Woman, for instance, was drawn by a guy named uh, Harry Peter. You know, and his Wonder Woman was anything but beautiful. Okay, it was it was very clumsy drawing, and uh, the all of a sudden in 1944, you get Mac Baker comes along, and all of a sudden he's drawing these beautiful model type women. And as time went on, he got better and better. And I totally agree with you. His artwork to me is one of the top five comic book artists of all time. But unfortunately, he died when he was 37 years old of a heart attack. You know, he had a congenital heart disease. Actually, he got it from a rheumatic fever when he was a kid. But uh, he was a heavy smoker, and he died at 37 years old in 1959. A real tragedy. Now, it's at that time, that's what readers were looking for, because those readers back oh, yeah. then uh, were adolescent or adult white white men or adolescent exactly. boys. Um, so they that's the reason why they bought the comics. Right. Um, so this goes back to you, Dr. Carpenter, when you mentioned about these artists leading double lives. Um, so here you have a black man drawing this version of, of a beautiful woman, um, but he's living in a time where if he is caught looking at a white woman, that he could be at risk of losing his life. Um, so were the publishers aware of how dangerous it could be if people, if readers would have known that Matt Baker um, were the one, was the one who was uh, creating this artwork, uh, a black man creating this artwork on white women. If I had to, if I had to speculate, I would say yes, they were aware, but that really wasn't at the top of their mind. Um, there, there are so there are many stories about um, publishers getting antsy about. Um, about readers in the South and um, in other areas seeing that there were black people involved because they, not because they were, they were concerned about what would happen to the black people, but they were concerned about what would happen to their sales. I'm even thinking of uh, the publication of Lobo, right? Like the first issue came out through Dell. They loved it, or, or audiences loved it. But um, there were, there were um, a lot of stores in the South that were really concerned about it. And they just pulled it. So, um, you know, you know, when we talk about things like 
like Jim Crow and the color line, um, it was it 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 is something that was that was policing the stories that we tell about ourselves, and I think that's what we don't talk enough about, right? You know, so we so this idea of the color line, this idea of segregation, also gets creates this imaginary in which we believe that we didn't interact. The reality is, is that we did interact, is that, is that um, black men and women were crossing the color line to work in white society, but they were quickly going back to the other side where they lived most of their lives. And then we have this story about segregation, Jim Crow and the color line, which erases that interaction, right? So we kind of know what's happening because we know that there's a black butler and a black maid, but, but we, we so push that story down that we forget that they have lives. Right. And then we just say, Oh, well, all the black people were over there. Well, clearly that wasn't happening. And that's the story that Ken is telling. Right. But even in that story, you can see how that bigger story served to get the populace to, even though they could see it, to not believe it. Mr. Baker is credited for creating Vuda, the first black hero in his own comic book. It only lasted a few issues until he was changed to a white-skinned character. Can you tell us how Baker was able to create a brown-skinned character, even if only for a short period of time? How did he get away with creating a dark-skinned character okay. at well, that time? Okay, you got to understand, when an artist draws a comic book, he draws it in black and white. It's just ink on paper, okay? So when he did the artwork, whoever, whoever the editor was is just looking at a black and white artwork. However, it's also up to the artist to tell the colorist what colors to use. So I believe, you know, I've, you know the artwork doesn't exist, or if it does, I haven't seen it. I'm sure that he designated show this man with uh, black uh, skin, with brown skin. And I think it just sort of like bypassed the editor and they didn't realize it until the comic book was actually printed. And they got away with it for a couple issues. But what's notable is that the same character, Vuda, was depicted on the covers. And at the same time he was a black man inside, he was depicted as a white man on the cover. And this plays into what Stanford was talking about, where uh, sales, <laughs> comic book publishers don't have consciences, okay? They have bottom lines that they look at and sales figures. And they were terrified that comic books would be taken off the stand in the South if they depicted a black man in a heroic role on a comic book cover. So what they did is they made him white on the covers, you know, and that carried over to even the 1960s. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people are aware, but the Black Panther originally had a half face mask like Batman. Okay. Yeah. But what they did, Marvel gave him a full face mask on the cover of uh, Fantastic Four number 52 because they wanted to hide the fact that he was a black man. And that was 1965. So, you know... You know, these prejudices and these decisions were made for a long, long time. It wasn't just something that happened in the 1940s. We're talking about, you know, leading up to, well, the 1970s before they started feeling comfortable enough even to pick the black man in the comic book. So what's next now for both of you? What, 
what what projects are you working on right now? Well, like, it's fortunately, yeah, I say fortunately or unfortunately, I have so much in front of me. It's it's almost scary. But uh, I'm working on a book right now with a Hollywood actress. Um, her grandfather was a very prominent figure in the comic book industry, and uh, what it is is I'm almost done with the book and that. But when the book is finished. She's already lined up financing. She wants to make a movie based on her grandfather's life. Wow. And supposedly I'm going to be a producer in the movie and everything. However, I also have enough information to do a second book on the Invisible Men. Because at the time when I finished the first one, I had twice as much information. But they said, Ken, you got to cut this thing down. It's way too long. So they gave me 250 pages. But there's a lot more about guys like Tom Feelings, like Stanford mentioned. You know, so there's, there's a lot more stories to be told, and I can't wait to tell them. Excellent. Dr. Carpenter. Uh, so right now, um, doesn't seem comic related, but um, I'm getting ready to um, teach a first of its kind class at ISU um, uh, on the ethnogothic. Um, it's a, it's, the ethnogothic is a term that I co-created with John Jennings. Um, and it has to do with, with, um, with looking at the way in which black horror is a way for, um, for African-Americans to, to um, deal with racialized trauma. Um, so we're going to have like a five-week mini course. It's going to be held at the Normal Theater in Normal, Illinois. It's a beautifully restored like art deco theater. It's, it's going to be a hoot. It's also open to the public. And, um, and at the same time, I'm also finishing up uh, finishing up um, a book uh, for Fanographics Press. The, the name may change, but the current name that we're working on is um, All in My Feelings About Black Comics. And, um, and a big part of, um, of my contribution to that book is going to be is talking about some of these issues in terms of sort of the black imagination, unleash the black imagination. The book itself is designed to, um, we're going to actually reprint the entire, um, all of all Negro comics. And then we've got several other, several other comic strips that we're going to do complete story runs. So the idea is we're going to have a whole bunch of complete story runs and then we're going to have all of this, all of this commentary. So, so I think of it as, as, as a book that would be kind of like a primer, right? You could pick this book up and you don't know much about black comics. And you can you can read the commentary on it, but you could also actually read the stories, not just a panel, but read an entire read an entire storyline. Um, so that's something that we're working out. We're hoping um, we're hoping to finish it this year and get it out next year. Nice, wonderful, congratulations! I wish you both the best. This is an incredible honor. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, yeah. wonderful. Um, thank you so much for indulging us. Thank you once again to our guests, Ken Quattro, historian and author of the book Invisible Men, The Trailblazing Black Artists of Comic Books, and Dr. Stanford Carpenter, a cultural anthropologist, comic book scholar, and archaeologist. Thank you for joining us once again. Thank you for joining us at Father Son Galaxy. We are at the Fan Expo in Chicago. Until next time, take care, and we will see you again.